Hello, and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Christianity does not repel doubt. In fact, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you might find that Christianity actually attracts doubt. And so the antidote to to doubt is not just have more faith. (laughs) That's not the antidote to doubt. The antidote to doubt is the truth. We're living in the information age, an age of ideas, but not all of them have been good ideas. We're seeing the truths of the Bible increasingly challenged, even around the very existence and nature of God. So the question for us as believers is, how do we respond? Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in a five-part series on apologetics, and no, that's not related to apologising. If you're not sure how to justify the existence of God, stay tuned, and let's join Dr. Corbett for the apologetic arguments for God. Okay, if you would kindly take your seats, please. Great to have you here today. My name's Andrew, Andrew Corbett. I'm also one of the pastors here, and uh, please join us after the service. We'll have tea and coffee. And if today is the first time you've ever been to Lagana, really warm welcome. We hope we see you again. Uh, we'd love for you, if you're looking for a church, to make this your church home. And we'd love to welcome you into this home. If you are able to like us on Facebook, that'd be great. If you're able to check in on Facebook, if you go just to your wall and you'll see check in, you can just check in. That just tells people where you are and, and you may not want that, but... It's actually a great witness on a Sunday uh, to let people know that you're in church. And you may want to invite someone to church, even though they're still in their pyjamas. So you can invite them to go to lagana.org webcast right now. Just shoot them a text or shoot them a message and say, this is what I'm watching. I'm live. I'm here. Why don't you have a look while you're wearing your pyjamas or whatever you're doing and jump, jump online as well. When I'm done this morning, I'm not just imparting information. I'm actually wanting to achieve something today. And what I'm wanting to achieve is change. I actually want to, I'm just telling you straight up, I want to change every one of you. I want my life to be changed. And this is a change for the good. This is a good change that I'm talking about. And so when I I get right near the the end of what I have to say in about 35 minutes or so, I'm going to ask you to respond. And and then for those who do, I want to pray with you and pray for you. So that's where we're going to finish up. And then I need to, um, again, just introduce this term. This is the second in our series on apologetics. And after I'm done with a few of these, we're going to have some really, really special guests come. One of them is the Bishop of Tasmania, the Anglican Bishop of Tasmania, who is an expert in this this arena as well. And then a couple of weeks after that, because we couldn't get him any sooner, will be Dr. Mark Dury. And you are going to be proverbially blown away when you hear Mark Dury. It It is going to rock your socks. So you don't want to miss any of this. So today, I want to deal with an apologetic, the apologetic arguments for God. So apologetics is the biblical word. It means to give the reason. That's what apologetics means. It doesn't mean, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. It means, it, that's what it's come to mean. It, it actually means to give reasons. So to apologize is actually to give reasons for something. 
And all of us as Christians are told in, in uh, 1 Peter 3.15 that we need to be ready to give answers to those who ask of us why. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you have the hope for what you believe? So I want to do a little exercise now. Maybe you could just turn to the person near you and in one sentence, could you tell them why you believe in God? Go. All right. Now I'm going to ask you another question. This is a one-sentence answer. It just got exchanged, so two sentences are going to fly back and forward here. So that was, why do you believe in God? Here's the next question. One sentence. Why are you a Christian? Just tell the person on your left or your right or behind you or in front of you or under you or wherever they are, just why you are a Christian in one sentence. All right. Anyone struggle to do that in one sentence? It's tr- it can be tricky. All right. I think we're all on a pathway when you come to Christ. It's not just you're in and that's, that's it. It's the deal is done. I'm going to heaven. That's all I need to know. There's actually something that happens when you become a Christian. You are being changed because Christ, the more you hang out with Jesus, the more you're going to become like him. And... If parents have ever seen their kids do something and you go and, and you realize they're actually copying you. You know, I remember the, one of the first times I saw Tyrone, who's now just celebrating, or today celebrating his 28th birthday, but one of the first times I saw Tyrone go, Oh, I'm that kid. Hang on a minute, that's what I do. <laughs> like, <laughs> the more you hang out with Jesus, the more you, you are going to be changed. And you, you're not going to probably go, Dog, because I don't think he does that ever you're probably going to end up uh, becoming a person who enjoys peace and joy and you're probably going to laugh more because I, that's, I think that's how Christ is. And I, we certainly see that in the Gospels that he played with children in the streets and the religious uptights got really upset with him because they thought that was very unbecoming. So Jesus was a fun guy to hang around. And not fun in the stupid sense, but fun in the sense that you just felt at ease and you felt safe and you felt happy to be around him. And when it comes to answering those two questions, which both those questions involve giving reasons, this is what we call apologetics, the ability to be able to give good reasons. And I think there's seven steps that we're all on. And perhaps you're here today and you're actually at this first step. I actually don't believe there is a God. I haven't got it. Not, it's not that I can't put words to, to the answer. I just don't have an answer because I actually don't believe there is a God. So that could be where you're at. Well, that's great. Welcome. I'm, I'm really thrilled that you're here. You might be watching my webcast right now. Thank you. I really appreciate it if, if that is indeed where you're at. Here's the second step you you could be at a place where you've come to realize well no I think there is a God I believe there is a God you could be at the third step where you have come to realize no I think there is a God because I can see people who I love and trust they believe in God and if it's good enough for them it's good enough for me now I I get that I think some people actually become Christians on that basis I, I get that fourthly you could now have moved a little bit beyond that and go, well, actually, I'm now a Christian because I found good reasons to believe what I believe. I, I can now see that uh, the, the truth supports the claims of Christianity. 
And then there's the, the fifth step in the journey. And the fifth step in the journey is that you, you have come to realise what those really good reasons are for believing in the God of the Bible and in Christianity. And so there's two more steps after that, I think, in, in your walk with Christ. Number six, it's where you have developed a confidence a confidence that uh, you could share your faith with someone and they could throw all kinds of things at you and you would still be quite confident that what you believe is, is the truth. And then the seventh area is where not only are you confident in what you believe in, not only could you defend it, but you also uh, see false ideas and you are prepared to take on those false ideas and show people why they're false. And that's, that's right up the top there. And that's, that's kind of where I want to get to eventually. And uh, the Bible actually says that it's not just being able to do that, it's how you do it as well. And we saw it in our, in our key text, 1 Peter 3.15, it says that we're to do that with gentleness and respect. So it doesn't mean you're finger-boning someone in the chest and telling them they're wrong. It means that you're able to engage in a conversation with someone politely, gently and respectfully. So these questions, these two questions I think are really important. Why are you a Christian? I want to say every Christian parent needs to be able to answer these two questions to their children so that their children move past that level of faith where it's, well, I believe because my parents believe. We want our children to go to that next level as well where they go I believe because there's good reasons to believe and the same for God so but for many people the answer to these two questions comes down to usually one of two reasons number one I was raised in a Christian home I actually asked someone this question or these two questions this week or last week just gone and this was the answer they gave why when I asked why you're Christian why do you believe in God and and he said because I was raised in a Christian home my response to that was, what if you'd been raised in an Islamic country by Muslim parents? What would you be then? Which he hadn't thought about, but, but logically that means you'd probably be a Muslim. So, and neither of those answers is about whether something's true or, or not, is it? It's just, this is just the environment I was raised in. The other one is that people sometimes offer is, I had a religious experience. It could be I prayed and the prayer was answered. It could be I was at a low point in my life and I had this really vivid dream and God revealed himself to me, a religious experience. Maybe you offered one of those two reasons to the, to the people near you when I asked you to share why you were either someone who believed in God or whether you were a Christian, why you were a Christian. I want to today give you what I hope to be a much better response in both of those. And, and in doing that, I well recognise you may be at level one where you just don't even believe there is a God. You may be at level two where you believe there's a God and that's about it. You may be at level three where you go, well, I actually, I'm prepared to go to church because I, I, there are some people I know, I like, I trust, they go, so I'll go with them occasionally. And that might be where it's at. And if that's you today, welcome. You're always welcome here. Always welcome. So 
people who profess to be Christians based on either of those two reasons are really, really susceptible, though, to doubts. And this is where I think, as Christians, we need to understand the place of doubt in our Christianity. Christianity does not repel doubt. In fact, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you might find that Christianity actually attracts doubt. And so the antidote to to doubt is not just have more faith. (laughs) That's not the antidote to doubt. The antidote to doubt is the truth. If you get a firm knowledge of the truth, you'll be able to deal with the doubts that you have and the doubts that those around you might have as well. So really, I'm I'm asking you to come to this this position. You, You believe that there is a God because there's good reasons to believe it's true. You believe that Christianity is true because there are good reasons to believe it's true. So here's the thing we all know, and I really I want to get this, because in a moment I'm going to give you some really good reasons for believing there is a God, the God of the Bible, and secondly, that Christianity is true. So I'm going to give you those reasons in a moment. But I'm very, very aware of this. You can present someone with the truth, and it doesn't guarantee they'll believe it. It's so frustrating. And the most bizarre story that illustrates that involved Jesus himself. When Jesus himself was at the tomb of Lazarus and all the sceptics and cynics were there and there, there is Jesus, he stands in front of the tomb, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And, and it, it says that those around him said, oh, see how much he loved him. And, and I love what F.W. Borum says at this point. F.W. Borum says, Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and wept not because of what had happened to Lazarus, but because of what he was about to do to Lazarus. He was about to bring him back. And for that he wept. (laughs) Different perspective on life, isn't it? And so he said, roll the stone away. And their answer was, and if you've got the King James, which if if there is anyone here older than 400 years, fair enough, you should, that's your language. Uh, It says, um, uh, but Lord, by now he stinketh. Four days in a Middle Eastern tomb. So they rolled the stone away. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And out comes, I mean, Halloween's not that far away, but it would look pretty creepy. Here's a guy, completely mummified, wrapped. Walking out. And Jesus says, untie him. Unbind him. Um, face wrapped, blind. How he found his way out of the cave, I'm not sure. Maybe the, the light. Uh, but, but here's the thing. I mean, if you didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, if you didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and you saw that, would you believe? <laughs> I would. And what does it say? The scribes and the Pharisees who saw this said, oh, that was no, that's no good. How are we going to kill Jesus now? Oh, we better kill Lazarus as well. And you think... What the heck? If, it, if that doesn't convince you that you're wrong and he's right, I, I don't know what will. So if Jesus found that presenting the truth to people is no guarantee that they'll accept it, chances are 
that we're going to find the same thing too. And there's a reason for that. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, in, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to write, there are some people who are just never going to accept the truth because spiritually they're blind. And that's why it really does take a miracle for someone to become a believer. And you know, miracles happen when you pray. In fact, your chances of seeing a miracle dramatically increase when you ask for one. And prayer is asking for miracles. So you might be here right now thinking, I know someone like this. And I hope that I change you from being someone who doesn't pray for them to becoming someone who does pray for them. And you may even be praying for them right now. And that'll be fine too. So we see that this miracle that Jesus was talking about happened when, when he spoke with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the chief theologian. The, he was called the teacher of Israel. And Jesus said this to him, and this guy who was the, supposedly one of the most spiritual men in Israel, he, he was blind, blind, completely did not get what Jesus was saying. And Jesus said this, Jesus answered him, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Huh. Goes on in verse 4, and Nicodemus responds, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus goes on and says, unless a man is born of water and of the spirit, he can't see the kingdom. So here's the thing, and people say, oh, born of water, that must be water baptism, and born of the spirit, being filled with the spirit. But that can't be right. It can't be right because nowhere does the Bible say you must be baptized in water to be saved. But the Bible itself is called the water. This is called water. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that by the washing of the water of word, the word, the water of the word, we are made clean. And so to become a Christian requires a miracle where you believe God's word and the Holy Spirit does something in your life. It's not one or the other. It's both things. And I found this. That there are some people who can come across so defiant, so no dealish, so hard, that when you begin to pray for them, something begins to happen in their heart. And I want to see something happen in your hearts this morning, in your hearts right now. And as I mentioned at the end, I'm actually going to invite those as I speak, as I share God's word, I think this word the water of God's word and the Holy Spirit present right now in this place is going to transform hearts. And if he's beginning to transform your heart through the word of God and by his spirit, I want to pray for you at the end and give you something. That, that's where we're going. The prophets of old, they foretold of what Jesus would do when 
Jesus talked about you must be born again and it will be a miracle that I give you. I'll cause you to be able to believe this and I'll cause my spirit to transform you. This is how the prophets of old foretold of it. Ezekiel, speaking of the new covenant, he said this, I will give them one heart and one spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now, I mentioned earlier that I, in my daily reading, my daily Bible reading, I'm up to, um, I read Deuteronomy 28, 29 this morning, uh, maybe even 30 as well. And in there, it actually, in, in that passage of Scripture, God says this, if you will follow me, speaking to Israel, if you will follow me, then I will circumcise your hearts to be tender toward me. Not a new heart, because back then there was no outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but Ezekiel, foreseeing what Jesus would do, that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. So you might be here thinking, I could never become a Christian. I could never believe this. I could never live like the rest of you people. You, you all look perfect. I'm not. I could never do that. Here's the good news. All you have to do is take that first step and the Holy Spirit will take you on the rest of the journey. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And so the prophet, this is Ezekiel. We could look at Jeremiah said something similar. We could look at the other prophets. They talked about the day when it would come, when God would do something by his word and by his spirit. Ezekiel goes on in verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. So this is where I just want to make a, a distinction between if I asked you, do you believe in God? Which I didn't ask. I asked, do you believe God? <laughs> do you believe there is a God? Do you believe in God? See, when I ask, do you believe in, it's like saying, not only do you believe he exists, that's a given, but do you trust him? Do you trust him? And there's that story of the, the, the uh, I think it was the French guy who had a tightrope put across Niagara Falls around the turn of the 20th century. And he went across with a pole. And then he carried a man on his back across. That would take faith, wouldn't it, if you're on the guy's back across Niagara Falls. I mean, it's called falls for a reason, right? It's like this could be the end of it. And, and then someone said to him, you are amazing. I bet you could even wheel a person in a wheelbarrow across there without your pole and he said I could get in <laughs> see and it highlights the difference between believing something and believing in something and that's the difference so in a moment I am going to invite some to believe in what the Bible says and believe the God of the Bible but to do it it takes a heart transplant and I don't mean your actual heart, I mean the invisible part of you, the, the core of who you are. And that's why I think whenever I meet someone who presents themselves as an intellectual with all these intellectual objections to God and all these intellectual objections to Christianity, I know they don't mean it. And so I try, I try to deal with them and then eventually, and I had this conversation with someone who was a PhD student in sociology, which is just going to mess your head up anyway, let alone doing a PhD on it. 
And I remember I, I, I played tennis with this guy and, uh, and I came off the court and he's, I, I said, do you need to lift home? He said, yeah, that'd be great. So we're walking across the car park and um, he says to me, I'm an atheist, you know. And I thought, oh, I don't know where that came from. Um, and I said, uh, straight away, I said, no, you're not. And we just kept walking. And he said, what do you mean, no, I'm not? I said, you're not, you're not an atheist. He said, what do you mean I'm not an atheist? I said, are you telling me of the 11 living religions, you're saying all of them are wrong? Now, I knew being a university student where you're taught everyone's right, I knew he couldn't say that. So I sort of had him, I sort of got him. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not saying, I'm not saying all religions are wrong. I said, well, there you go. You can't be an atheist then. He said, well... Well, what am I? <laughs> I, I you, you may be an agnostic. You don't know. Agnostic, gnosis, no. A means... So you, you may be... You, you're agnostic. You don't know. He said, yeah, yeah, that's what I am. But, but you just said all religions can't be wrong. Therefore, you're probably a religionist. <laughs> and so we, we're nearly at the car by now, across the car park. And he said... Okay, I'm a religionist. He's like puzzled over this term. And then he said, but how do I know which one's true? I said, that's a great question because they can't all be true. Because it dawned on him, all 11 of the major living religions all say something exclusive. In other words, they claim that they're the only ones who are right. And they say things that are in complete contradiction to everyone else. So they can't all be right. He got that, he realised that. And so I said, yeah, you're right. You can't really be a religionist and believe all religions are true. There has to be, because you're someone who's researching and you're an academic and you want to know what the truth is. Therefore, you're probably someone who's going to apply the tests of truth to these religious claims. And he said, yeah, 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 absolutely. What are they? And he was very, very sincere too. I said, well, it starts with the founder. Could the, found, could the claims of the founder be confirmed and backed up? And I think what you'll find is that there's only one who passes that test, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, I'm cutting that exchange, because we're sitting in the car by now, cutting that exchange down. And as we, we got to West Launceston, where he lived, it came to... And, you know, you can't just be someone who thinks Jesus was a great teacher... Because he doesn't give you that option. This is C.S. Lewis, right? He doesn't give you that option. He actually invites you to do something about what you know about him. By the time we got to his place in West Launceston, I said, would you like to do that? He said, I think so. So I'm going to pray for you and let's just see what happens. So I did. Now that, now that may be... You may be on that journey as well. And it may cause you to think, well, hang on a minute. How can, how can you prove God's existence? Can we prove God's existence? And this is where I'm, I'm just going to let you know that proof only, only means anything depending on the claim. So if I said to you, this pulpit is one4 nine meters high how could you prove that 
would you use a stopwatch? But you'd use a stopwatch to prove something, but not the height of that. If I said to you, Cyclone Tracy happened, uh, was it Christmas Day 1974? Was it? Yeah, Christmas Day 1974. How would we prove that? Well, you'd look for an eyewitness who was there. You may have gone to Darwin and seen the damage, because apparently they'll tell you about everything's Cyclone Tracy's fault. 1974, you could ask someone who was around in 1974. I remember my great-great-grandparents telling me about it. Um, <laughs> I, vividly, I vividly remember Cyclone Tracy, 1974. So in other words, historical claims, you don't, I wouldn't use a tape measure, I wouldn't use a stopwatch. I, I might go for an eyewitness, I might go for a history book. So in other words, proof corresponds to the type of claim being made. That's the first thing. Now, there's a, there's a saying that atheists will use because when we say there is a God, they say that's an extraordinary claim and extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Um, no, they don't. Extraordinary claims are like any claim. They just simply require proof. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please visit our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select the Apologetic Arguments for God from our online store. As we've heard tonight, when confronted with the question, why do you believe in God, there are a number of common answers. Some of those reasons leave believers open to being swayed by doubt or false teaching. The antidote to that is not more faith, but more truth. More from Dr. Corbett next week with part three of the Apologetic series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Liana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.